Luke 8, 26. They sailed to the country of the Gadarenes, which is opposite Galilee, and when he stepped out of the, on the land, there met him a certain man of the city who had demons for a long time, and he wore no clothes, nor did he live in a house, but in the tombs. And when he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him with a loud voice, said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For it had often seized him, and he was under guard, bound with chains and shackles, and he broke the bonds and was driven by the demon into the wilderness. And Jesus asked him, saying, What is your name? And he said, Legion, because many demons had entered him. And they begged him that he would not command them to go into the abyss. Now a herd of many pigs was feeding there on the mountain, so they begged him that he would permit them to enter them, and he permitted. So the demons went, left the man and entered the swine, and the herd ran violently down the, the hill into the lake and drowned. When those who fed them saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. When they went out to see what had happened and came to Jesus and they found the man from whom the demons had departed, he was sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Bill Johnson likes to make fun of this because they're fine with the naked madman howling at the moon in the cemetery, but uh, they get really scared when Jesus clothes him and he's sane and sitting at his feet. The pig herders are fine to live next to the madman in the cemetery, but they're run away in fear when Jesus shows up. They also, who had seen it, told them by what means he had been, he who had been demon-possessed was healed. And then the whole multitude of the surrounding region of the Gadarenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear, and he got into the boat and returned. Now the man from whom the demons had departed begged him that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your own house and tell what great things God has done for you. And he went his way and proclaimed throughout the whole city what great things Jesus had done for him. That's an awesome story. So Jesus shows up and crosses the Lake of Galilee or the Sea of Galilee in this boat. He shows up in this town where there's this the local uh, insane madman who lives naked in the cemetery and howls at the moon and and they try to chain him up, but he can he's supernaturally powerful. He can break chains, and he runs off. And it's just a really terribly sad story of what could have possibly been done to this man or happened to him or what choices could he have made to end up in such a horrendous state. But he is set free by Jesus. Jesus drives the demons out, makes everybody in town scared because they knew how to deal with the crazy man. They don't know how to deal with Jesus. But uh, my point in in all of this is that Jesus is leaving, and the man comes to him. He says, let me go with you. He begs him, it says. He begs him to go with him, and Jesus says, no. Jesus says, no, you can't. I want you to stay here. I want you to tell everybody you know what I've done for you. And he leaves him. This guy has no Bible. He has no church. He has no other believer friends that understand that Jesus is the Messiah. All he has is his own miracle. And Jesus tells him, go and tell everybody what I did for you. Bill Johnson calls this Jesus' faith in the gospel. That I'm going to say it's Jesus' faith in us. That we don't need any other evangelistic training other than that one sentence from Jesus. Go and tell everybody you know what I've done for you. You don't need to know anything else. Because this guy has known Jesus for what? Hours? A few hours? Maybe? Maybe an afternoon? And Jesus leaves him and says, go tell everybody what I've done for you. That's some tremendous faith on Jesus' part that this guy will make it. That he, he knows, Jesus knows, I have set him free. And then when the next thing we see him, he's clothed and in his right mind and sitting at Jesus' feet. So he's listening to Jesus. He knows that Jesus knows, I've set him free. I have given him some very simple instructions. He can handle it. I'm leaving. I'm going on to the next town. That's some tremendous faith on Jesus' part. Like I said, Bill Johnson calls it Jesus' faith in the gospel, which is a great way to say it. I'm going to say Jesus has great faith in his disciples. Jesus is that full of faith that he entrusts us with that kind of freedom. Jesus didn't think that he had to give him every little scriptural command and micromanage 
the rest of his Christian walk. I said Jesus didn't feel the need to micromanage the rest of his Christian walk. He trusted that this guy, out of thankfulness and love and freedom and the deposit of the Holy Spirit that Jesus had put in him, he'll make it. And this guy is never mentioned again in Scripture. This just this story right here. But Jesus did go back to that town later on in the Gospels, and it's the biggest crowd he had in his entire ministry. So by inference, we can tell that this guy is the most successful evangelist in the Gospels, other than Jesus. As that's an inference. I'm not saying that the Bible says that, because it doesn't. It doesn't mention him. But the next time Jesus is in this area, he has tens of thousands of people in the crowd. So the guy did it. And he succeeded, not knowing anything other than, I met Jesus, and this is what he did in me. You don't need any other evangelism training than that. Tell the people that you know what Jesus has done for you. That's it. It's that simple. It really is that powerful. It really is that simple. I'm going to go to Luke 19. If you want to follow along here again, Jesus tells a parable about himself, and I'm going to read it, and then we'll connect the two in just a second. This is the parable of the minas. A mina is a coin, a silver coin from back in Jesus' day. Uh, you probably familiar with this passage because I have preached on it a lot in the last seven years. But here we go again. Luke 19:11. Now as they heard these things, he spoke another parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. So right here we know Jesus is telling this story about himself, and he's telling it to tell the, the people and us that his earth, there was going to be a great distance between his earthly life and the final establishment of the kingdom of God. And he says, speaking of himself, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive a kingdom and to return. And we are 2,015 years into that, I'm gone to receive my kingdom and he will return. But we're not there yet. He hasn't returned. He went to receive his kingdom and he gave 10 of his servants and delivered to them 10 minas. My notes in my Bible say a mina is a coin, and it's worth about three months' wages. So this one coin is worth six dollars to $15,000, depending on what you make and you know, our wages today or whatever. So this coin that Jesus uses is a very valuable coin. Jesus gives the master in the story, it's Jesus, gives one to each of ten servants. Okay? And he says, do business until I come. But his citizens hated him, and sent a delegation after him saying, we will not have this man to reign over us. Remember that group of people, they'll come back at the end of the story. The people who would not have this king rule over them. And so it was that when he returned, having received the kingdom, he then commanded his servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know how, each, how much every man had gained by trading. And then came the first saying, Master, your mina has earned ten minas. And he said to them, Well done, good servant, because you were faithful in very little, have authority over ten cities in my kingdom. And the second came, saying, Master, your mina has earned five minas. Likewise, he said to them, You have authority over five cities in my kingdom. And another came, saying, Master, here is your mina. I kept it wrapped up in a handkerchief. For I feared you, because you are an austere man, and you collect what you did not deposit, and you reap where you did not sow. And the master said to him, Out of your own mouth I will judge you, you wicked servant. You knew that I was an austere man, collecting what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank that at my coming I might at least have collected interest? And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to him who has ten. But they said, Master, he already has ten. But I say to you that to everyone who has will be given, and to, from him who does not have, even what he does have will be taken away. But bring those enemies of mine here, who did not want me to reign over them and execute them before me. So this is Jesus talking about him here the first time. He goes on a journey, and he, at his return, his servants will answer for what we did with what he gave us in our lives. There are three groups of people in this story besides Jesus, who is the master. There's the people who just flat out say, he is not my king. You see those people. So we will not have to be him to be king to rule over us. There are other people who are faithful servants, who serve him while he's gone. They take what he has given them, these coins, and they invest them and work it, and they give him some sort of a return when he returns. Yes? And then there is the wicked and lazy servant who doesn't deny that 
the king is king, but he didn't do anything with his life. Hello? Three groups of, or three types of people in this story. I don't know what happened to the other seven servants that Jesus just mentions these three. In the parable of the talents, it's very similar. In another scripture, Jesus told the story another different way, but it's very similar. We've got these three groups of people, those that say no to Jesus, those that say yes and work hard, and those that say yes but don't do anything. What I want to draw out of here, though, is how Jesus uses his authority. He calls himself a certain nobleman who is going to a faraway land to receive a kingdom. And he takes his own money and he invests it in his servants. And then he leaves. Just like the man with the demons that he set free and then he leaves, Jesus tells these servants, here's my money, do business until I return. And he trusts them and leaves. It's Jesus' faith in his disciples. Notice he does not give them instructions on how to do it. He just says, do business. Well, what's that, Jesus? Whatever you want to do. I trust you. You take what I've deposited in you and you do your thing and earn me some return. He does not make them all copy the exact same thing. Come on. You with me? Notice how he rules his kingdom. He shows what his definition of freedom is, that he is all about personal freedom in this parable because he treats everyone exactly the same. All ten servants get exactly the same gift or investment from him. They each get one coin. He does not give the poor more and the rich less. Everybody gets treated exactly the same. He doesn't force morality on anybody. He doesn't give them dictated instructions on, I want all ten of you to do the exact same thing with what I have given you. He doesn't offer artificial support. By that I mean he gives everybody the equality of opportunity. Here, I'm giving you all the exact same opportunity. You're all starting in the same point. And now you do what you would like to do to earn an investment for me in my kingdom. There's no guaranteed outcomes. There's no subsidies. There's no picking favorites. He doesn't feel sorry for someone who is weaker. Everybody gets the same thing and the same opportunity. And then when he returns, everybody is rewarded according to their own individual life. No one is condemned for accomplishing less than another. One guy gets 10 coins back, multiplies 10 times what Jesus gave him. The other guy only does five. Jesus is equally happy with the guy that does five if it's his best. There's no condemnation. Well, you did fine, but this guy did better. No, he says the exact same thing to both of them. Well done, good and faithful servant. You did what you could do, and I am just as happy with you earning five as this guy over here earning 10 but they don't get rewarded for something they didn't earn. The guy who has the capability to give 10 times more gets 10 times authority. The guy who only earned five does not get 10. He gets five because that's what he is capable of. It's what he earned and it's what he's capable of. Jesus does not reward everyone the same because it is totally based on what did you do. No one is condemned for accomplishing less than another, but nobody is paid for what they didn't earn themselves. The wicked and the lazy are called wicked and lazy. I love it. No PC wimpiness with Jesus. If somebody is wicked and lazy, he calls them wicked and lazy. He doesn't make excuses. Well, I know you had a hard time in life, or I know that you didn't know this or that. No, you're just wicked and lazy. And the rebellious are executed. Jesus is not a doormat of a king. I said Jesus is not a doormat of a king. Exact justice is served. And his freedom does not mean no consequences. If somebody chooses to say no to him, they will pay with their life. Right now, there is grace. When this story happens, 
That door is done. There is not another day because the day of the Lord has come. The rebellious are executed. He is not a doormat. But he is all about freedom. The freedom to obey, the freedom to choose, the freedom to say no. When he, we say, when he saves us, when he set free the man in the Gadarenes who had full of demons, or when he gives these servants their money to invest, he does not then possess us with the Holy Spirit and make us do right. Because we are not free if we are not free to choose wrong. If, if we are a software program, if the Holy Spirit is a download of software, like in the Matrix where they plug their brains into the computer and, and now they know all this extra stuff. If that's what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit, then we are automatic robots and it's not relationship and it's not love. The Holy Spirit does not possess us. He offers a choice. Jesus is all about choice and freedom and equality of opportunity, but every single one of us gets to choose our own outcome. Whether we will obey or whether we won't. 2 Corinthians 3.17 says, The Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit is, there is liberty. Where the Spirit is, there is liberty. Jesus is all about freedom, and he shows it in how he treats the man of the Gadarenes. He sets him free, fills him with the Holy Spirit, gets him in his right mind, tells him a very simple one-sentence instruction, and says, I trust you enough, I will now leave you, and you can go do that, and you will succeed. In these, with these servants, he says, here is my investment in you. The mina represents the Holy Spirit. It represents salvation. It represents your deposit from God into your heart, your spiritual gifts, your personality, your interests, your intelligences, and how you would serve God. I'm not talking about choosing morality or picking your own way in life. I'm not talking about not obeying God. I'm talking about you being an individual and not a mind-numbed robot. I'm talking about freedom. Jesus trusts us enough to set us free. Because if we do what we do, because we are forced to, then it is not love. I did it because I was pre-programmed, or I did it out of guilt, or I did it out of condemnation. But when we choose to obey God out of faith, even when we don't see it or feel it, that's real love. And that's God. So that's the freedom that I see in the kingdom of heaven. That Jesus sets us free... And then he sets us free. He sets us free from Satan who would make us puppets. Jesus cuts the strings. He does not retie Holy Spirit puppet strings on us. It was for freedom that he set us free. It really is that simple. He set us free so that we could be free. And some people will use that freedom to say no to him. They will pay. Some people will use that freedom to say yes to him and will serve him and love him and work hard for his kingdom and for his return and there is a coming day of great joy. Other people will say yes and then really not do anything. They will answer for that choice too. But freedom is the thing. Freedom. Now, I'm going to have to take a little rabbit trail here, but I'll come back to right where we're at. Just stay with me because I need to address something that I know all of you have seen and maybe even been on the receiving end of this. So there's what I see in the kingdom of heaven. That is how Jesus carries his authority, is that he sees his authority is to set people free and not to control them. He sees his authority as empowering people to be who God made them to be. So then Jesus tells me as pastor that I'm his representative. He says in John 13, 20, Most assuredly I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me. And he who receives me receives him who sent me. In Luke 10, he says this, After these things the Lord appointed 70 others also and sent them two by two before his face into every city and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, He who hears you hears me. He who rejects you rejects me. And he who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Hebrews 13:17 says, Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. 
So those verses say something to you. They also say something to me and any other pastor. It tells me that I am supposed to represent Jesus, and that makes me quiver. The Bible in another place says that pastors, teachers will have a stricter judgment than other people. That verse there says, I am accountable for your souls. That does not mean that I make your choices for you, though. But what I see is that there's a lot of pastors and other leaders like managers at work or teachers or government leaders. They carry authority and they're in charge and they think that means I have to keep people from doing wrong. And they do this to us. They choke us off. So the verse says, I have to give accountable, I have to, I'm accountable for your souls. And the other verse says that we pastors and teachers will have a stricter judgment than the rest of the church. And I know you've probably seen it. Maybe you've lived under it. There are a lot of churches, elder boards and pastors, who out of fear and to, in the excuse of keeping people from sinning, they cut off people's freedom. Anybody been there? Done that? Jesus saw his authority as a responsibility to enforce freedom, not to enforce and control and direct people's individual daily choices. Freedom in the kingdom of heaven is just that. It is freedom. I often get comments on freedom in this church from those who love it and from those who are not comfortable with it. Uh, those who think there's not enough and those who think that I should limit someone else, but of course not them. It is the rock bottom solid value of my heart is freedom. And I don't say that I get it right or that our church is the ultimate in freedom, but it's a non-negotiable with me because what I see is that, well, let me back up. Jesus said, Beware the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod. It's the spirit of politics and religion. Politics and religion are the same thing. It's the fear of man and it's the fear of control. And you see it from Washington, D.C. to the Pharisees to legalistic Christians today. Their response to sin is more rules. Every time somebody sins, the national government wants to pass another law. Or in a church, when somebody gets out of control, well, we just got to stop that altogether. So, Mitch, are you talking about earthly government stuff or are you talking about church? Yes. Jesus spoke to the truth and it involves every situation in earthly life. It involves his kingdom of heaven, but it also would be wise for earthly governments to do the same thing because righteousness exalts a nation. The answer to sin is not more rules. The answer to sin is freedom. Freedom from sin and freedom to choose. And then enforced consequences if somebody chooses stupidly. But the problem is not solved by another law. Because we've already got laws that say murdering someone is illegal. Every time somebody shoots somebody, somebody wants to pass another law. From gun control to airport security to church legalism... Rules and laws clamp life and they choke people off and they kill the spirit. So in this church, my rock solid, non-negotiable value and definition of freedom is that he said it was for freedom that he set us free. And there will be people who do stupid stuff when they're free. And we have people get out of control up here. Other churches would say, well, then we just have to shut it all down. I say we address the sinner and keep everybody else free. Yes. We don't need another rule. We just need to address the situation so that everybody is safe because freedom is not no rules. Freedom is not no discipline. Freedom can be very strict, but it is never controlling. We'll get to that in a minute. What I see in the parable is that Jesus shows that his view of his own authority is to empower us and then give us 
individual choice because for anybody to do anything right, it has to be a free choice. If somebody chooses wrong, there's consequences, even up to and including death. But we're free. And he does not take away people's freedom because of other people's wrong choices. So I know I realize that some of you may not think this is the most free church ever, but some of you have said that, and it's not true. But you, I, I get, like I said, I get comments about the freedom in this place a lot, and uh, people enjoy it, or people don't, or they want more of it, or whatever. But if you enjoy any measure of freedom in this place, and you see how that comes from me, I just want to give you a little background information of where I'm coming from and what I see, what I see freedom is, and who we are as a church because a lot of the parents and kids love the fact that we let the kids dance and twirl and run around up here. It makes some people very, very nervous. Like that's out of control. I've told you before that when Dwayne started that years ago, it made me nervous. It was distracting. I couldn't worship with all the running around and stuff. But they're not totally out of control. We do have rules. They cannot come up on the steps. They can't be running back and forth. They can't be spinning where they're going to hit somebody. I mean, they're not, there's not total anarchy up here. It's not. It may look like it, but it isn't. You know, and and we have with people that we know and trust over time. We we let people come up and prophesy and speak the word of the Lord. And and a lot of times people say, "I have a word from the Lord," and and they get up in the microphone and they say it, and it obviously wasn't. It doesn't mean that, that we just shut the mic off. Well, they killed the spirit today, so we're just going to shut the mic off because we can't have that again. That's that's the Pharisees. That's that legalistic rules way it is. No, we address the person that came up and killed the spirit, and and we move on. Exactly. We keep it flowing. We keep it mo- open, and people can be free to make mistakes. We deal with the consequences, but everybody else stays free. If you if you see any freedom, if you feel free to be who you are in this place. I need to tell you some background that the the one person that God used more than anybody else in my life to teach me what freedom is, some of you are really going to be upset by this, but the, the person that I have learned the most from about the definition of freedom is Rush Limbaugh. And I know that makes some of you choke. But when I was 14 and 16 in the tractor all summer long with dad and I listened to the radio every day and as a high school kid with a skull full of mush, I got taught about what freedom is and what liberty is and what limited government is and personal responsibility and what communism is and socialism and the stifling of economic freedom and choice and prosperity and I just got it. I got filled, and I know some of you have only heard little snippets of his show, and I'm not saying you need to like his show or you need to become his disciple. That's not what I'm saying. I've told you before, the Lord's had me repent of listening to and joining him in his mockery of some people. But I have listened to him for 24 years, and I love him, and I honor him highly. And he's a highly intelligent man, and he knows his stuff. And where I got taught about freedom was his teaching about what makes America great. And that has nothing to do with the people who are here or any sort of magic that happened on this continent. It has everything to do with a philosophy of freedom, of economic and political freedom, that when people, there's a reason why everybody in the world wants to come here for the last 60 or 70 years. And there's a reason why, let's just use one example, people from India, People from India who migrate to America, they consistently, in the statistics, Indians do better financially than the average American when they get here. Why is that? Obviously, it has nothing to do with race or location because they couldn't do it in India and they can do it here. The reason is freedom, that they can do what they want, that they can do what they care about and they get to keep their own money. They're not stifled by a bunch of rules and bureaucracy, and we are fast losing that. Fast losing that. But what makes America economically prosperous and why we have good things, I'm not saying everything in our past is perfect and nobody's is, but why has America succeeded in areas where others have not? It's because of freedom. 
because of the philosophy that let the person do what they want and choose their job and keep their money and be who they want to be. We're fast losing that. But I learned about freedom. And then, in the course of time, 13, 14 years ago, I get introduced at about the same time to Bill Johnson and Rick Joyner, who are church pastors, and, and they absolutely blew my mind in the amount of freedom that they allow in their church, especially in expression of worship. Crazy, wild stuff. And they don't allow everybody to do whatever they want. No way. But it was blowing my box. It was the expression of worship and the freedom in those places that I saw in Reading and in Charlotte, the teaching that I got from those two guys, And when I became a pastor, it was my honest goal, and I don't say I've accomplished it at all, but it is my honest goal to make uh, sure our church is a place where people are free. To be yourself, to believe how you have your faith and how you want to express yourself toward God. And there are absolutely, there are boundaries and discipline, and um, we got to keep people safe and so on. I'll talk about that in just a second. But I got... What I saw there was that freedom equals life. Because where I grew up was deadness and legalism, and what I saw was that control and rules equals dead and free equals alive. That people are excited to come and express themselves and worship to God, and that where I grew up, where it was a bunch of rules and sit on your hands and stand here and sit there and don't do this and don't say that, and everybody ends up acting like each other without any expression, there's deadness. So what I see in the kingdom of heaven from Jesus modeling us in his parable and in the way he treated the man in the Gadarenes is that Jesus saves us, then he teaches us, and he gives us a heads up that, hey, when we meet again, you will answer for every choice you make, but I trust you and I'm leaving. Adios. Galatians 5.1 says, for it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Jesus absolutely is all about Freedom. He is not about control. He's not about micromanaging. He's not about dictating. Absolutely 100% there are consequences if we choose wrong. He is not a doormat of a king. And we will pay if we rebel. But it is our choice. Because freedom doesn't pressure anybody to do what is right. You get into a legalistic church or you get an overbearing government or a controlling mom or dad, or a boss that is micromanaging. They're trying to get you to do what is right by pressure or manipulation or guilt trip or just threats or physical force. That's all from the devil. Any correct moral choice, any virtuous act has to come from our free will. The government cannot force us to do right. Jesus cannot force us to do right or it doesn't count. So I will not twist your arm to serve in this church or to tithe. I will not put a guilt trip on you. I will tell you what is right and wrong, but I will not put a guilt trip on you if I know you're in sin. It is your choice. Even though this is the truth, I fear for some of your souls. Because you are so hard-hearted and disobedient. Some of you, not most of you. Some. I will not twist your arm. You know what is right and wrong. I'm not going to babysit you. Everybody said. Thank you. You have to choose right in freedom. You have to. Because I've seen so many pastors do that manipulation, control, helicopter mom kind of thing. And I hate it. And their congregations hate it. And they never succeed. Freedom does not hype or drum up or scare people into doing something. We are so manipulated in our world that we don't even recognize what is manipulation. Every commercial advertisement you've ever seen is manipulation trying to steer your actions and choices. Everything is stirring up people and hype from the campus riots the last week and a half to 
uh, organized labor to people selling fear or outrage on Facebook or CNN or Fox News. Politicians going around scaring people about all the problems. Elect me and I'll fix them all. It's manipulation. And I won't do it. I have pastor friends, lots of them, and I'm friends with them on Facebook. You don't see this stuff, but I see their their Facebook posts, and, and there's one that's like, it's almost every Sunday. Make sure you're at church this Sunday. It's going to be epic. Really? Every Sunday is epic? Does your worship team never miss it? Do you, Every sermon you have is just epic? You don't ever have an average Sunday? You don't ever flop? If If a pastor's going to sell church as epic every week, he's going to fall. Come on. It's totally normal and fine to have an average Sunday. <laughs> Freedom allows individuality. Every single one of us is completely different. Like everything else God made. And that doesn't mean choose your own morality. It doesn't mean uh, you can define what is right and wrong or create your own persona. We, I'm not talking about any of that. But in obedience to God, we will all look a little different. And we have brothers and sisters that are the polar opposites of us, and they really annoy us. Freedom is the thing. Freedom. Come on. God, all through Scripture, God compares us to flowers and plants and trees. Well, how many different kinds of flowers are there? And how many different areas and climates and locations do they grow in? There are plants that live in the mountains that cannot live on the coastlands. And there are plants that live in saltwater that cannot live where there isn't saltwater. The things that turn you on may turn somebody else off. The things where they thrive, you may not like at all. Freedom! I'm not talking about sin, permission to sin. That is not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about permission to be who somebody is. The quiet person that sits on their hands and then the exuberant person is shouting and clapping and and like, I really wish she'd shut up. (laughs) Freedom. And the exuberant, expressive people who are all Pentecostal and like, you people aren't really worshiping. Freedom. Let them sit on their hands. They're here. They love God. We're brothers and sisters. Somebody get really, really, really turned on by corporate group worship. They're like, four songs today? What was that? Mitch just totally killed the spirit. Somebody else is like, man, it's two songs too many. Can we please move on? (laughs) Some of you get totally turned on by praying with other people and you love that back and forth and that fellowship and other people are like, get away from me and I want to go alone into the secret place and just be with God by myself. Freedom! Freedom! We're not mind-numbed robots. Nobody else is going to be like you and you aren't going to be like anybody else. If you want me to let you be free, you let other people be free. I'm talking about in this room. You let other people be free. Freedom allows choice. Freedom allows debate and disagreement without rioting and demanding resignation. Freedom is all about choice. Everybody has the choice. Harvest is reading a book right now about an American POW in Japan during World War II. He's actually from Oregon. His name is Jacob DeShazer. And he was in the prison camp, was it two and a half years? Two and a half or three and a half years? He's in camp. Okay, three years and seven months. He's in a POW camp in Japan. And we win the war and he is liberated and the Japanese guards are opening up the cells and setting them free. And the guard asks him, do you want a haircut? And that question paralyzed him because he had not been able to make a single decision in three and a half years. He could not answer that choice. Choice is freedom. Control is from hell. Satan controls and dictates and binds people up and locks them. You can't make a decision. You can't be yourself. You can't have a choice. And unfortunately, that happens in a lot of churches It happens from Washington, D.C. It happens from Salem. It happens at work. It happens in a lot of families. You will not choose. I will tell you what you will do. Freedom is all about choice. Freedom never takes what is another person's. 
Freedom doesn't demand that anyone else pay for what you want. Pay for your own college. Provide your own food. Jesus said, if you don't financially pay for your family, you're worse than an unbeliever. The students riding for free college and think that the rich ought to pay for them are evil. It's not freedom. Freedom never takes what is another person's, and it doesn't demand more payment or credit than what is offered. I said this already in several different ways, but freedom does not punish everybody for a per one person's mistake. I had a junior high science teacher named Mr. Alloway, whom I loved. He was a great guy. He was my bus driver since I was in kindergarten. Mr. Allen and I would, tra would trade jokes every day on the way home from school for until I was 16, 10 years, I suppose. I loved Mr. Alloway, but I didn't like him in class because as a 7th and 8th grader in science class, he would, if somebody did something wrong, the entire class would get in trouble. We'd all get a lecture. Been there? Done that? Everybody would get in trouble for what one kid did. Now, if you're a junior high science teacher, you probably need some serious rules, some serious control, because junior hires can just be that way. One day, one day we were dissecting frogs, and two girls got in a fight over a boy, and one girl nailed the other girl's hand to the table with a scalpel. Bam! Right between those bones. Boom! <laughs> just nailed it to the table. <laughs> so, Mr. Alloway, you got to have some sympathy for Mr. Alloway. But because he's, that's his class. So, but, but Mr. Alloway, if somebody did something wrong, and I'm sure there was lots of times we all deserved a good butt chewing. But Mr. Alloway did that every day, it seemed like. Like, Mr. Alloway, you, we all know who you're talking to. It's that person right there. Just take her out in the hall and deal with it. We don't need this lecture because we didn't do that. And as I said, that's the government's response. There's a threat on an airplane, and we all have to be more hassled through airport security, even though we know exactly who does this. But we're going to hassle elderly ladies in wheelchairs and do nude body scans and metal detectors when it's, it's just a charade. Because we know who does it. Every time there's a murder, it's like, we need to pass a new law. We've already got tons of laws about murder. We don't need more laws. We don't need to all get in trouble. Amen. Somebody acts up in church, little kids running around, get out of control. I deal with it or Sarah deals with it or their parents deal with it. It doesn't mean we go sit all the kids down. Somebody comes up, like I said, and claims to have a word of the Lord and it obviously isn't. doesn't mean we shut the microphone off. And well, we're not going to do that in this church anymore because it got out of control once. Well, we deal with the sinner, we correct the sinner, pull them off the stage and tell them to sit down and be quiet. And we move on. God in the Old Testament has this very unfair reputation of being legalistic. Like There's a whole bunch of rules in the Old Testament. There's only 613 laws in the Old Testament. By comparison, in the last seven years alone, just in the EPA, we have passed 3,000 pages of regulation for a total of 2.6 million words of regulation just from the EPA alone. And none of that is voted on by Congress. That's just all dictated to us. The FDA numbers are nearly the same. There is a bill right now in Congress, the Pacific Trade Bill. There is in one bill in Washington, D.C. right now that's up for a vote. It is 6,000 pages long and 2 million words. Now you compare that with the Old Testament and you tell me who's evil and who's righteous. I'm so totally serious. You tell me who is evil, who's legalistic. It is not God of the Old Testament. You tell me who's the Pharisees of today. Religion makes more rules. Politics makes more rules. Rather than deal with the problem, which is sin, religion and politics control the outcome. They control the action. I told you, religion and politics are the same thing. The same thing that makes religious, pointy-headed, legalistic churches dead is what is killing our nation from Washington and Salem. It's what Jesus said is the leaven of Pharisees and of Herod. But freedom is not anarchy. 
Freedom creates boundaries for the safety of the group. Freedom will be abused by those that don't have boundaries or who are selfish or don't have any self-control. But freedom is not freedom if somebody transgresses those boundaries. Jesus is not for anarchy. He doesn't let us do whatever we want. He's not even a libertarian. He's certainly not a no-borders person. Because in John 10, he says this about his pasture, where he is the shepherd. He says, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. Jesus calls his kingdom a pasture. He's the good shepherd, the perfect pasture. We are the sheep, his people, the sheep of his pasture, uh, the Old Testament says. And Jesus says his pasture has a fence around it. And you do not get in without his permission. It's not just America that has a border control problem. The church has a border control problem. We have a lot of people who are claiming to be Christians who are not because they did not come in through the gate. They did not come in on their knees to Jesus Christ. They're just associated with us and they are, Jesus says, they are thieves and robbers in the pasture. So Jesus is not for no borders. He's not for anarchy. He's not a no government person because ultimately sin is not freedom. Freedom is not I can do whatever I want. It's not. Rebellion is not freedom. Rioting and agitating are grossly ugly. Submission to authority is beautiful. We have the U.S. government removing freedoms of personal responsibility and prosperity and instituting false freedoms of immorality and government programs for free stuff. And they are enslaving people. Whether we're talking about an individual person in your own heart, whether we're talking about a family, whether we're talking about churches, a pastor, a dad, a boss, a business owner, or a government leader, when somebody is in authority and there are no boundaries, there's no order or laws, then there's chaos. You may have been in a church where the pastor did not carry any authority and there's just chaos because he's afraid to confront people. You know families where the parents don't spank their kids, where there isn't authority and hard and fast discipline. The kids are out of control. You may have worked in places where your manager was gone all the time, didn't address problems, and the business goes belly up. Or you just hated working there because nobody was in charge. Come on. That's not freedom. Freedom is not do whatever you want and the authority doesn't have any authority. That's not freedom. There's always chaos and breakdown and futility and a squandering of resources and corruption and real danger. It's not freedom. But individual people, families, churches, pastors, governments, businesses, where there are too many rules, there's laws and boundaries that stifle and control people to the loss of their individuality and creativity and economic and spiritual prosperity. Then there's corruption and this choking regulation in religion and politics that both operate in the fear of man and the fear of failure. If you've had a controlling boss or a controlling family member or a controlling pastor or a controlling governor or president, it's all about the fear of failure. It is, I have to control people's behavior so that I don't fail. And that is the exact opposite of what Jesus does. Jesus says, I will set you free and you can choose to fail if you want, but I believe you'll get it right. I'm not going to micromanage you. But if you choose wrongly, I'm not an anarchist. You will pay. Hello. He is not a doormat of a king. So freedom is not an absence of rules or laws. Freedom is not no government. Freedom is not a do-whatever-you-want moral anarchy. Freedom is not zero accountability or control. Freedom is not an absence of discipline or of judgment. Freedom is absolutely tells people no and stops dangerous behavior. Freedom is a solidly defined fence around the pasture so that nobody gets in or out without the shepherd's permission. But freedom is also not a stifling list of rules to control people's decisions. Freedom is not a government or a leader micromanaging. It's but freedom will not remove risk and danger and loss potential. If you're free, you're free to fail. And Jesus set that up on purpose because you're free to do right also. Freedom is not getting something for free. 
Freedom doesn't punish everyone when somebody else sins. The sinner is dealt with. Everybody else remains free. Freedom is a shepherd who, inside of that tight fence around the pasture, lets the sheep be sheep and let every sheep be who she is and who he is. As long as there isn't disorder and chaos, let everybody be who they are. Because Galatians 5.1 says, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. And in verse 13, it says, you brethren have been called to liberty. Do not use liberty as an opportunity for your flesh, but through love serve one another. Freedom is the thing. You have been set free. Let other people be free. If you want freedom, accept the responsibility that comes along with it. That you are actually in charge of the outcome of your life. Jesus trusts you that much. That is fantastic trust. Here, I give you salvation. I set you free from all the chains that bound you. I give you my Holy Spirit. I give you my grace. I'm out here. Have a great life. We'll see you at the end. And I have a reward for you for what you choose to do out of love. And we will. We will. Thank you, Jesus, for your freedom. Thank you for setting us free from sin, from lies, from addictions, from darkness, from depression and hopelessness. You are our only hope for freedom. We cannot be free ourselves. You are the way and the truth and the life. And only living under your kingdom is there true freedom. Thank you for your freedom. Thank you for setting us free. That you trust us. That you trust your gospel. That you trust your Holy Spirit. That while you are receiving your kingdom, you trust us to obey you, to make the right choices, to do what we, you have instructed us to do. Lord, we repent right now if we have used your freedom as an excuse to do what we want. We repent right now if we have excused our sin. Please forgive us for saying yes but then being lazy or intentionally disobeying. Fill us with your freedom. Fill us with your power. Make us not only free in ourselves but make us messengers of your kingdom freedom. Lord, that out of our mouths and our hands that your gospel would come, that your Holy Spirit power would be present in us to set others free, that we would never use whatever authority and relationship you have given us to control other people or manipulate the situation, but to bring your truth and to set others free. Thank you for your freedom, Lord. We love you, we bless you, we praise your name. Amen. Amen. Freedom. <laughs>